You are listening to the Kyle Talks Podcast, hosted by Kyle Garlett. Hello, everybody. I am the aforementioned host, Kyle Garlett. This is the Kyle Talks Podcast, and we are in a post-Thanksgiving coma. Hopefully, everybody had a wonderful holiday. I am in the UK, uh, and believe it or not, we did celebrate Thanksgiving here. Now, it's not a a nationwide thing. Um, Interestingly enough, it is a nationwide thing to have Black Friday, which strikes me as odd since everybody works, and there was no holiday just the day before. But there are Thanksgiving celebrations that break out here around the country. Um, mine involved, of course, the uh, the average uh, turkey, mashed potatoes, uh, wonderful stuffing, gravy, green beans, and lots and lots of American football. You have to be committed, though, to, to uh, watch your Thanksgiving Day football here in the United Kingdom. It is uh, a five-hour time zone difference between London and New York. And that means that the final game of the day, after three full games of football, the final game of the day gets over after 4 o'clock in the morning. So you've got to be committed. I I confess, I did not make it through all three games. I did watch one and a half games. uh, But I do know that many people here did. And many of my uh, American football friends who uh, are from all walks of life, not uh, not Americans, but Brits and, and other Europeans, certainly watched all three games. They are committed football fans. But anyway... Um, I am mostly recovered. My 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 west the waistline of my pants has uh, has recovered, and we are on for the show. Thank you very much for joining me, wherever that may be. As we do each and every episode, let's begin today's show with our survivor of the week. Three years ago, Avery Mars was an incoming freshman on St. Joseph's women's basketball team, a local Philadelphia area recruit on the St. Joe's radar since she was in the eighth grade. Mars helped Wilson West Lawn High School to four consecutive county championships while also playing for the highly touted and talent-laden AAU team, the Philly Bells. In short, she was primed to be a college basketball star and expected to start at point guard for St. Joe's as a a 17-year-old incoming freshman. The sky was the limit until the evening of August 23, 2014. Having just unloaded the last of her things from her car and into her new college dorm room, Avery's left leg gave out. Then, as she was sitting on the bed because of that, she started to feel warm. Then she collapsed on the floor, unable to move the left side of her body. Avery had suffered what was later diagnosed as an arterial ischemic stroke caused by a blood clot blocking an artery on the right side of her brain. She was treated immediately with a tissue plasminogen activator, a therapy designed to minimize the brain damage caused by stroke, but a treatment that also carries with it a risk of fatal cerebral bleeding. She survived those first few critical nights and then had to go about the task of relearning how to do the everyday things we all take for granted, like tying shoes, putting on clothes, and walking upstairs. Forget basketball. Avery was in a struggle to simply regain normal life. That is until she was told by a doctor that she would never play competitive basketball again. That got her to thinking and it got her motivated. She wanted to play again, for that there was no question. But when she first tried to run again, she recorded it and said of watching the tape, think of the most uncoordinated human being you've ever seen jogging, and that was me. I remember watching that video with a knot in my stomach because of how bad it looked. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I can barely run from one line to the other. How am I going to be able to move well enough to compete with Division I athletes again? So motivated to achieve her dream of playing college basketball, but self-conscious of how she looked while trying to do it, 
Avery began working out at night away from the watchful eyes of anyone but her mother. Her high school field hockey coach would open up the gym late at night for her with only one instruction, please lock up when you're finished for the night. That is where Avery was for hours on end, reteaching herself to play the game of basketball. And after two years of physical therapy, strength training, and late night basketball workouts, she rejoined the St. Joe's basketball team. And now a year after working out with them in her senior year at St. Joe's, the former freshman phenom has made her college basketball debut and achieved her dream. It was surreal, really. I mean, it's a long time coming for me. I didn't expect it to take three, four years, even though I knew it was going to be very difficult. So um, to have it be my senior year um, with my senior teammates that I came in with, that was, like, huge. I really wanted to be able to do it when they were still here. Um, So, yeah, when I checked in, like, it was pretty early on. I think it was, like, the end of the first quarter. Um, By that time, we'd already been in Italy uh, this summer, so I'd already kind of had one game under my belt with the team. So by that time, as I checked in, it was really just like a moment of excitement and like, finally, it's here, and that's something I've prayed for for a long time. Um, So that was amazing, and then obviously scoring was another huge um, stepping stone, I guess, to finally coming back fully. So, yeah, it it was unreal. As a basketball player, Avery remains a bit of a work in progress. She may never return to the same kind of explosive or dominant player she was expected to be coming out of high school. But her coach says that she continues to get better each week, and if Avery chooses to play another season next year, she would still be eligible. Right now, she is on track to earn a communications degree from St. Joe's, and then she says she would like to pursue a career in broadcasting. And after listening to her speak, it's hard to imagine anything but a successful broadcasting career and a successful life and a life of meaning and purpose for Avery Mars, our survivor of the week. Moving on to our hero of the week, and this has a post-Thanksgiving ring to it 10 years after it happened. Trey Leffler was 25, working in politics and by all accounts, one of the nicest guys you could meet. He organized young professionals to help volunteer at the Ronald McDonald House, a place I've supported and respected for years, a place all about making sure families are near their children as they go through lengthy hospitalizations. It's a great organization. Trey also volunteered for mission trips to Jamaica, where he worked with the local children. Trey understood the best thing he could do with his life was to use it to give back to others. In November of 2007, on Thanksgiving of that year, Trey gave in the most complete and profound way possible. Involved in a serious car accident a few days prior, Thanksgiving was the day he died. But because of Trey and his family, that was also the day that two single mothers in in their 40s were gifted life. A 56-year-old mother of two and wife of 28 years was granted her second chance at life. A 36-year-old man who, like Trey, loved to fish, could start planning more fishing trips. And a 62-year-old physician and father of four was told that his two-year wait for the organ required to keep him alive was over His gift had arrived. In all, Trey saved the lives of five people directly that night, and his legacy continues to impact lives 10 years later. There is a Trey Leffler Memorial Scholarship given to college-bound students from East Tennessee, where Trey was from. A youth community center in the Trenchtown neighborhood of Kingston, Jamaica, where Trey worked and helped build a playground, has been named in his honor, and support for this center continues through the outreach program at the University of the South at Suwannee Trey's alma mater. And the website set up to honor Trey's life and legacy, which can be found at TreyLeffler.com, encourages continued support of the Nashville Ronald McDonald House with a donation in Trey's memory. And I have become aware of Trey, his story, and his legacy because his sister, Laura Leffler Herzog, wrote a beautiful piece for the Washington Post 
10 years after he died. And that led me to his memorial page and this paragraph from the eulogy that Laura gave at Trey's funeral. As you've heard me say and seen me write many times over the past week, Trey Leffler, more than anyone else I know, truly lived his life according to the second commandment. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And on Thanksgiving morning, we received the news that Trey would die the same way he lived, by loving and giving. As a natural extension of his generous spirit, he had chosen to be an organ donor. Trey's story became a resurrection story. Out of death and despair came new life, and our Thanksgiving became an Easter. Because of Trey's loving choice, at least five people are living new lives. Thank you, Laura Leffler Herzog, for your words that introduced me to your brother and for your words that capture so beautifully the transfer of a loved one from death and into new life. Trey Leffler and his continued legacy is our hero of the week. I am recording this on Tuesday, the Tuesday known as Giving Tuesday, following our day of thanks last Thursday, our day of self-indulgence on Black Friday, a day of further self-indulgence, but for our digital age called Cyber Monday, and now it's Giving Tuesday. Feels like giving should be given more than one day, no? Uh, clearly, that's something Trey felt, and a sentiment shared by the next two people featured in this, my obsession of the week. I seriously cannot get enough of this story or these people. One of the people is 27-year-old Kate McClure. Driving into Philadelphia one night near midnight, Kate ran out of gas. She pulled over onto an exit ramp and prepared to get out of her car and walk to a gas station. But but before she could start her journey, up popped 34-year-old Johnny Bobbitt Jr. The homeless vet told her to get back in her car, lock the doors, stay safe, and he would return with the gas. Return he did with $20 worth of gas, purchased with his only $20, Twenty dollars he'd been given by the generosity of others while he was panhandling that day. Bobbitt said of that decision, I had to return the favor I can't constantly take and not give back. Kate, for her part, was so blown away by the kindness and generosity that she created a GoFundMe account with the modest goal of raising enough money to help her new friend and late night hero get off the streets for the holidays. Well, that GoFundMe account at last check has had more than twelve thousand donations and raised more than $360,000 for Bobbitt, who is an ex-Marine and former paramedic, and has been homeless on the streets of Philadelphia for a little over a year. Bobbitt, very mindful of his place in the world and good fortune that has come his way, says he plans to use the money to get a place, maybe a used truck, turn his life around with the goal of working at a nearby Amazon warehouse because they offer good health insurance, and then give the rest of the money to charities that are working on helping people living in similar circumstances. So a big bravo to Johnny Bobbitt Jr. for seeing someone in need and acting. A bravo to Kate McClure for paying that back to her rescuer a thousandfold. Bravo to the many thousands that have been moved by the story to lend their own financial assistance. And a double bravo back to Johnny for furthering the giving by using his moment in the spotlight to help other people. Whenever you get down in the human race and think that we as a species have become consumed by self, look for people like these two. They are out there. Good people are all around us. Kate McClure reminds us of that. And without a doubt, Johnny Bobbitt Jr. reminds us of that. And thanks to this chance encounter on a Philadelphia area freeway, we've now been introduced to these two very good and generous people. 
Now, in doing this show, I, I try to take much of the focus away from myself and on to other people. But, it, of course, it is my own story, my past, and my perspective that has led me to doing a podcast. Um, if you are just joining me, if you don't know my backstory, I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor four times over, had numerous battles with cancer, including Hodgkin's lymphoma and leukemia, ended up having a bone marrow transplant. My heart was damaged during that bone marrow transplant, um, and thus I needed a heart transplant. I had that heart transplant in 2006 at UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles. I'm now being followed up on that here in the United Kingdom at, at a hospital called Harefield uh, outside of London. Um, that is relevant because just this past week, I went in for my annual angiogram, something that I have to do yearly because as a heart transplant, when they when they remove that organ and put in a new one, they cut all of those nerves. So most likely those nerves don't grow back. And so that means that if I were to be having problems in my chest, in my, in my heart, I would not feel the same chest pains that somebody else would feel. I wouldn't feel the blockages and things of that nature. So they need to go in each year poke around with an angiogram, look around, see what's what's going on inside the heart and uh, give me the clean bill of health or tell me that there's an issue that we need to work on. As a transplant patient, I am at a greater risk for certain types of coronary artery diseases. Uh, and so they go in and look around at all that and just make sure things are okay. I had that done last week, actually on Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving. Um, it's a fascinating procedure. So they they go in through your groin where and they go in they go into an artery in your groin they take this kind of this big uh, well i don't know how big it is it certainly feels big cuz it's going into your groin um it's basically a tube that they uh they access the the artery with they so they numb the area up and then access the artery with this tube that then allows them to thread a catheter into the tube and through your veins and they follow that all the way up into your heart and the really cool thing is that you're awake for the procedure. I know some people would not classify that as a really cool thing, but if you've reached this point in your life, you've had you've been poked and prodded a lot, a lot of times, and so this kind of thing um, is less uh, less intrusive, less painful, less uh, upsetting, and more interesting because they've got this giant fluoroscope. So I'm laying on the table. On one side is the doctor, and on the other side of the table is this huge huge screen. I mean, this massive screen, I would love to watch a football game on it because it is, it is giant. Um, there's a, there's a little map of the human body there. It kind of shows him which section of the, uh, body, the x-ray currently is over. Then there's this, obviously this x-ray that's kind of hanging over my body and, and being, being positioned around my chest area so that they can take pictures of various things. And then I can actually see the whole procedure taking place. He's staring at it and I can look out. Uh, I can turn my head to the left and see what's going on as well. Really, really cool stuff. Um, and especially when you've, when you've had a heart transplant and you've had a, had somebody else's heart in your body. I mean, I, I remember the very first time I had a biopsy post transplant, they, uh, you know, they did biopsies to make sure you weren't in rejection. And so I had a biopsy and the very first time I had that biopsy watching, watching that whole procedure on that screen recognizing that that was somebody else's heart, but keeping me alive, I could feel it. It was, just, it was such a, just a cool moment. And I've never gotten tired of seeing those images when each time I have an echocardiogram, I love looking at the heart. Each time I have the angiogram, I love looking at the heart. And uh, last week was, was really cool. Uh, for the most part, as, the, as it's an x-ray, it's kind of um, dull 
uh, you know, that there's, you know, the, the, obviously bones. And for me, I've got ser- sternal wires from where they crack my chest. I've got a, a lead left over from a pacemaker that's still in one of my veins that's left over in there. Those stick out very well. And then, but everything else is, you know, it's kind of a faded picture on the, uh, on the x-ray until they inject the dye into your heart. So they've got this little contrast that they inject into your heart and the whole thing just lights up. And then they take pictures of your heart from uh, various angles as you're sitting there. And so you just see your heart lighting up and it's really, really a cool procedure. And, uh, and, um, I actually, I don't like the access of the groin. Um, that, that can be a little painful and then you have to lay flat for several hours afterwards so that your, uh, artery doesn't bleed out, which obviously is a bad thing, but, but for the 15 to 20 minutes or so that you're there, um, and having your, uh, artery accessed and your heart is being magnified on this screen, it really is a cool procedure. Um, the good news for me is that things look good. No short-term problems. We continue to adjust my medications for long-term and, and, uh, and, and, and medium-term uh, life as, as, as most transplant patients. I, I, you know, I've, I've been on re- rejection drugs now for more than 11 years, and that does a number on your body. Um, I've got kidney functions to, to be concerned about and some other things like that, but really all, all of these things are small prices to pay for the fact that I have this wonderful beating heart in my chest that continues to power me every day and allows me to live uh, the kind of life that I want to live. But while I was up in, while I was up in recovery post, uh, post my angiogram, I was up there with another young man and he was actually in the hospital being evaluated for the possibilities of being listed for lung transplant. He was born with his heart turned around. So when he was a really young baby, they went in and did a procedure to turn his heart back around, but he's dealt with some health challenges ever since he was a baby because of that. Uh, he developed cardio or I'm sorry, he developed uh, pulmonary hypertension and the, the, the stress on his lungs there has also now put stress on his heart. So his heart's enlarged because of the way his lungs are functioning. He's now 23 and he's lived all 23 of those years fighting, fighting his body and, and living, uh, this life. And, and I know he, he and his, uh, uh, he and his partner were up there and the two of them, un- they're, they're concerned clearly about the kind of life they're going to be able to live post transplant. So we got to talking and, and I was able to, to talk with him about my, my life after transplant and the, the being able to go and do triathlon and, and ultimately, uh, competing at the Ironman, uh, being able to do all the traveling that, that we do and, and, and just, and really living a normal life, always aware that each step I take is being powered by, by this donor heart and, and never losing sight of the specialness of that donor places in my life, but getting to the point where you don't think of yourself as a heart transplant, or if you do think of yourself like that, you don't think of it as, as a big deal. Um, you know, it's funny. I meet people and they say, boy, you're the first heart transplant I've ever met. And, and I always laugh because I, I respond, well, it's funny because I know a couple hundred heart transplants. It's the most normal thing in the world for me. And so I was trying to stress to him that that's the kind of life that he can look forward to where all of a sudden being a lung transplant is just a normal thing. The doctors there feel like that once he gets a lung transplant, that his heart actually will respond to the new lungs and uh, will will 
cease to be enlarged and will start to function much more properly. Uh, but it was really it was an opportunity to connect to somebody who is facing the same kind of challenges that I've gone through, and that is the thing that I love most about my my life and my status as a survivor of both cancer and of uh, heart transplantation is that I can use that as a platform to help other people through this podcast, but, but the one-on-one interactions that I have through the, through the speaking that I get to do, um, it's really a, a time when I get to talk to people about the things that they're going through. Because when I was first diagnosed at 18, I, you know, I had many people that I used as inspirations for, for myself, certainly as I was getting ready for heart transplant and picturing the kind of life I wanted to have after transplantation, focusing on those people and, and stories and being able to talk to people who'd gone through that. Because so many, th- so many things in, it, throughout this process are really about what scares us in our brain. We, we have created scenarios in our head that are far worse than the actual truth. And so I, I try to tell people what they can expect. That it's, of course, it's not all peachy keen and it's not just a, a clean bill of health for 11 straight years and no problems. But those problems are all, um, they're all doable. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to stress to him. And that's what I would stress to anybody out there listening right now who is waiting for transplant or, or going through something else, some, some other kind of catastrophic thing has happened in your life. And you feel like that there's simply no possible way you can get through it. I had that same feeling. I remember the very first day that I had chemotherapy, I came home and I thought there is absolutely no way. And I, I knew I was facing six months of chemo. And I thought there's absolutely no way I can get through six months of this. This was just one day. Well, I got through that six months. I then was re-diagnosed, got through more months, was diagnosed again, got through three more years. You trust me, you can do it. You can do it. The great thing about human beings is that we are so much stronger than we realize once we're pushed to that point, all of a sudden that strength comes out. But but don't don't feel like you can't do it because I know that you can because I have I've 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 gone through some really rough things. I've watched people go through worse things than me. I've seen people survive challenges that I can't even fathom. Um, you heard about earlier in this show uh, about uh, Avery Mars and and she, from going from stroke back to playing Division One basketball in three years. Uh, you know, it's just incredible uh, and you can do it. And it's, it's one of my great joys. Um, you know, as you're going through all these diseases and you're getting sick and you're, and you're losing years of your life, you're thinking, boy, what, what is the purpose? Well, you go out and create your own purpose. And the purpose that I've tried to create for myself is the ability to, to pass on the wisdom that I've gained to other people and to help make their journey just a little bit easier. Even if it's just for a day, they they feel like they can do it. Then I feel like that I've done something good and I've passed something along to my fellow transplants. But I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, that was what happened to me last week. Um, good clean, good uh, bill of health, good clean bill of health for me, which was a great little Thanksgiving gift. And then an opportunity to sit there with a young man as, as, as he looks ahead to an uncertain, certain future, but a future that... Um, can get him back to living the life that he so desperately wants. And, and uh, I think that's just the message I want to send today is that 
the kind of life you want to live, no matter what you're going through right now, is possible. You just have to navigate your way around the twists and turns. And, and sometimes you're in that really dark tunnel and you can't quite see where you're going. But if you keep plowing ahead, eventually you'll see that light and you will get there. That I promise. Before we say goodbye for another week on this Giving Tuesday, I wanted to share to you, uh, share with you a letter written by an Oregon recipient to the family that gave him his gift of life. Uh, it's beautiful, beautifully written, and the sentiment is is exactly how I feel, and I suspect most other uh, Oregon recipients feel. But I just wanted to read that here for you quickly. I wanted to write this letter and share my story with you. Not only to share my deepest heartfelt emotion, but also so that you know and believe that your loved one did not lose her life in vain. She literally gave life, not just to me, but potentially to many other organ recipients. The true greatness and selflessness of organ donation is just that. It is the donation of life. I've attempted to write this letter unsuccessfully several times over the course of the past years. Rarely can I even get past the first few sentences before becoming overwhelmed by my own emotions. Every time the words I write just never seem to accurately express my appreciation and gratitude. I realize that words themselves will never be enough to express how grateful I am to my donor and how truly thankful I am, really, to your entire family. I hope that as you receive this letter that you, your loved ones, and friends are well. I hope you are healing from the loss you suffered. I am sympathetically aware that you have suffered the passing of a wonderful and thoughtful woman. As you read this letter, I know that you are someone who called her mother or daughter, wife or sister, cousin or friend. Of course, I do not know her given name, but to me and to my friends and family, she is a hero. On August 15, 2013, I received a bilateral lung transplant. I have affectionately nicknamed my new lungs Eloise. The successful transplant of these lungs, donated by your loved one, has given me a second chance at life. It's important to me to know, that you know that I don't think of them simply as lungs or an organ, but rather as their own entity. I respect and love them as if they are themselves are human. I believe that the woman who donated these lungs, my new lungs, also donated several of her other organs. I can only begin to imagine what opportunity and potential greatness will come from the second chances that she now has provided, not just to me, but to the other recipients of her generosity. I hope that you believe, as I do, that your loved one continues to live on inside me. Her legacy will not be limited to her physical time here on earth. She lives on in me, my wife, and my children, my family, and the generations that will follow. Moments now and in the future that I share with my family and friends are only possible because of her. Every time my children laugh or my wife smiles, I think about Eloise. I feel her greatness. Not a day goes by that I don't reflect on how fortunate I am to have her with me. I will share with you a little bit about me. I was born with cystic fibrosis, diagnosed at the age of one. Despite the diagnosis, I lived a healthy life for 38 years. At 38, I was in love, had two beautiful children, a thriving dental specialty practice. I exercised five days a week. I spent my life caring for my family and patients. Honestly, I spent very little time thinking or worrying about the insidious disease that was festering inside me. Two years ago, I was befallen by pneumonia, resulting in a collapsed lung. Despite aggressive treatments, my lungs never improved or recovered. Life quickly became a struggle. I became oxygen-dependent. Even the most menial activities of daily living became incredibly difficult. For all intents and purposes, life as I knew it was slipping away. 
Fortunately, on August 15, 2013, I received the gift of life, a double lung transplant. Through the most challenging time of my life, I was and continue to be surrounded by world-class medical team, the wonderful unwavering support of family, friends, patients, and colleagues. My recovery is going beautifully and I'm getting stronger every day. I return to work full-time and live a normal, fulfilling, and happy life. Life as I now know it is magical. I hope that you were able to find peace in the knowledge that your loved one lives on in me, my children, and my extended family. Her legacy is eternal. I will forever feel her greatness. Not a day will go by that I don't reflect on how fortunate I am to have her with me. May God bless you and your family, and may you, may you forever know that I will never forget what my donor and her extended family have done for me. Beautifully said, and please, everybody, make your legacy eternal. Register to donate your organs. Sign that sign the documents, tick that box on your driver's license, tell your family and friends that that's what you want to do as your last and final act on earth. You want to pass on life to others. What an incredible way to go out. That is all for me. I do recognize that you have um, lots of podcast options. I appreciate greatly that you have chosen to spend these last 30 minutes with me. Uh, please, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to see me talk about things on future shows, send me an email, kyletalkspod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at kyletalkspod. You can also reach me through my website, kyletalks.com. Um, thank you so much. I hope that uh, your Thanksgiving was great. Your Christmas shopping is going well. And you are all set for a beautiful and wonderful holiday season. Until next time, Goodbye, everybody. The Kyle Talks Podcast is a 1010 Media Production. Goodbye.